State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Andrew Lasowski, head of Coral at Vox Media, about the State of Coral project. The Coral Project is an open source project helping publishers of all sizes build better communities around their journalism. Their premier tool is Talk. Let's begin. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thank you. Thanks for joining us. In the ah, no, no, thank you. This is this is great. That's really awesome. So, um, Andrew's from Vox Media, and there's been some exciting things happening with the the Coral Project. So. I'll just pass it over to you, Andrew, just to give you a bit of a background because there has been some changes that have been happening and we'll really go through the tech side of things as well. So, Andrew? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so so for those of you who are listening who, who don't know what the COIL project is, let me give you a little bit of background and uh, and also what, what it means for us now to be part of Vox Media because that is new for us. Uh, so so the COIL project was, was founded as a collaboration between Mozilla uh, the people behind Firefox and the New York Times and the Washington Post, and we were created really as a as a way of of trying to think about what it means for communities to be part of the journalistic process and for journalism to really look at communities in a different way. Um, and and from the beginning, our, our focus has always been on on creating open source software, on uh, creating things that are privacy centered, that are decentralized, which means not relying on big social networks or or other spaces to own your communities or own all of your data uh, and really be flexible for, for all kinds of, of communities. So, so for us, where, where we're at now, this, this is now uh, five years after the announcement of the founding of the, of the Coil Project uh, and that we joined Vox Media at the beginning of this year, as you, as you mentioned, um, which we're thrilled about as a, as a project. And now we have more than 60 newsrooms in 13 countries using our platform, which is called Talk, uh, to help engage better with with communities and journalists together. The biggest thing that it does is is, um, we think the comments section and what it can be and how it can work. And uh, we've been at Vox Media now for four months and it's been terrific so far. And this is a really forward thinking company that that already had an established product and technology team building its own uh, content management system called Chorus that uh, powers all of the Vox Media uh, brands, but also is being used by uh, Deseret News and the Chicago Sun-Times and other third parties as well. Um, so yeah, so so for us, it's been it's been a terrific transition. Mozilla was a wonderful place to incubate our work and, and help us focus on our mission. And now we're in a place that really complements our skills and, and what we're trying to do to to grow and, and increase our influence in, in the US and around the world. Nice. Um, we'll go through a lot of the tech side just a bit later in the conversation, but I believe you, just reading from the articles online, just with the news the announcement of the transition from Mozilla, that you were actually there from the beginning, is that correct? So, so I was there from the beginning as a, as a team. Um, so the project, it was it was the idea of Aaron Pilhoffer, who who at the time was, I think his title was Head of Interactive News at the New York Times. Uh, and it was really his idea to, to create something that would be industry-wide to, to look at this as a problem. And, and really, you know, typical Aaron, it was, it was very forward-thinking because, you know, this was before there was any backlash against Facebook. This was before there was real push towards subscriptions and membership uh, and, and thinking about bringing a closer integration of, of what it means to be 
a member in the mission and part of the mission of the newsroom. Uh, and and he really sort of came up with the idea. Uh, and so I was hired as the first full-time hire on the project. So so um, while there was some work done before, in particular by Greg Barber at the Washington Post, who did a lot of user research and, and traveling to to discuss the idea with different newsrooms, I was the first person to be brought on to, to then start it really moving forward in a meaningful way. Nice. And it's, it's very interesting. In, in our industry, people usually change around quite a bit just because of, of opportunities or just because of the nature of the role. What's kept you on this long, um, for five years on, on this project? Uh, it's it's a strange industry isn't it that we're in that that makes five years feel like an ancient uh, ancient history and and an old time but I mean for me this this has just been such a fascinating journey because the challenge keeps changing in in all these different ways Um, you know it started out as a you know, we need to pull together a team and figure out what this thing can be. And then it sort of moved from there into, okay, now we need to to figure out what we're going to build and, and the pieces and start trying things out. And then it moved from there into, okay, now it's more mature. Can we can we start getting newsrooms using it? And, and can we also raise more funds uh, as a nonprofit? Can we get more donations from foundations to help us with this? Uh, and now it's moved into a much more mature phase of, you know, how do we, how do we get more people using it, learn more from how they're using it, um, and sort of build build up uh, more of a foundation and make the project more sustainable and uh, and then really develop and go to the next stage of, of what the tools can be and, and where we can go from here. So so it's certainly never been dull and it's never been the same job. Uh, every few months it feels like uh, feels like I'm doing a move even though I'm staying with the same team and, and staying doing the same work. No, I think that's the main, I think that's the key thing, not having that sense of, feeling that sense of complacency. But let's take a bit of a step back as well. Um, who is Andrew? And you know, what's your background, Andrew? <laughs> um, who is Andrew? Goodness. Um, so, so my background is that, uh, as you can probably hear, I'm not originally from New York, though this is where I live now. Uh, I'm from the north of England, a city called Leeds, uh, which is sort of a small industrial city in the north of England, and. Um, uh, I've, I've been involved in different aspects of journalism throughout my career. Uh, when I went to college uh, in, in, in the UK, uh, I edited the, the college newspaper and also launched its very first website in the, the mid-late 90s. Uh, and, and from then on, I was really fascinated in the ways in which journalism and the internet and these digital platforms could, could interact and, uh, and, and sort of play off each other in different ways. So, so I worked in London and magazine company for a while. Uh, then I moved to Spain, where I worked in, in a, a publishing startup as well as freelancing for places like the Guardian and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and then I moved to the States, uh, worked in a museum interactives company for a while, doing different kinds of storytelling with digital, uh, and then worked at the Huffington Post as a senior editor there for a couple of years. Uh, and from then, I, I got a, a John S. Knight Fellowship at, at Stanford University, which is a, a very prestigious journalism fellowship. Uh, and then from there, worked in uh, sort of skunk labs at, uh, at News Corp, for helping build new storytelling tools. And, and from there, came to, to to the Coral Project. So it's been a, in some ways, a, a very divergent and meandering path, working in in print and in magazines, and uh, also in community art projects and in journalism in different ways uh, as a reporter and, and as as an editor. Uh, but also in different ways, it's been about exploring different media 
exploring different ways of storytelling, exploring and trying to understand uh, what you can do with different kinds of platforms. Uh, and I've always been fascinated with software from, from the times when I was programming in BASIC on my BBC B microcomputer uh, in, uh, into the late 80s onwards. And, and so for me, it's, it's really exciting to be on this side of journalism where I'm helping build products, I'm working with journalists, I'm working with newsrooms, uh, and really helping newsrooms rethink their strategy and using software to apply it. So, so yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey so far, and I have no idea where it's going next, but, uh, but this is where I am now. Like more and more journalists as well appear to be um, diverging from their main role just because, of, again, the nature of the industry to other, other roles. Some of them might go down the copywriting path, some are going down your path of focusing more on software. So how, how easy or how, how was the transition, that gradual transition for you and, and being able to get that skill set as well to, to be able to move into the, to the role you are now? Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting moment for for journalists in general to think about what does it mean to tell stories, what does it mean to serve an audience, what does it mean to to help create and grow uh, journalism for for what for what journalism's value needs to be, um, and and for me the the transition really came about gradually, almost in a way that I I, I didn't notice at, at first, which is to say that I'd always been interested in the bigger questions, not just what are we reporting today, but why are we reporting these things? And what does it mean to be doing this instead of that? And yeah. to what extent are these metrics meaningful or not meaningful? Uh, and so I'd always been interested in reading very widely uh, about these bigger questions and uh, occasionally would bring them up to my bosses who would say, uh, yeah, that's not your job. Please go back to, to getting some stories out today, which I totally understood. But uh, but these bigger questions, I would always go to O&A events in, in the US and uh, and different kinds of uh, conversations that were happening, uh, different events, just to just to think in this bigger way. Uh, and for me, really, it was the year at Stanford that helped me make that that shift, uh, helped me be able to step back and and think about these things in a different way, and then emerge from that with a clear idea of what it would mean to to go in that kind of direction. So so yeah, it uh, it it was it was gradual in some ways, but then uh, it was given this sort of kickstart by by the fellowship. Cool. That, that sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, I think it's very fortunate that there's those fellowships out there. Not a lot of people are able to get that opportunity, but it was very good that it's, it's awesome to hear that you've been able to get the opportunity. So, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I feel very lucky to have to have got the fellowship, and you know, they they give out twenty each year um, to to people around the world, uh, and it is a terrific program for anyone who's interested in in applying. There are others as well. Of course, there's the Neiman Fellowship at, at Harvard, um, and uh, I think there's a science writing one at uh, in Michigan. Um, but um, but yeah, if you can have that opportunity to have a mini almost sabbatical or, or focus just on one project, I, I highly encourage everyone to do that. Definitely, definitely. So. Back to that transition, I guess. Um, what does it feel like to be in an incubator? Um, and, you know, like you said, the focus was originally, uh, I guess, to, to develop that proof of concept. And now it's more around getting other users to get around. But how was it in terms of working for Mozilla? Um, and, you know, why was Mozilla interested back then to, to really take it on from away from New York Times and, and a few other of the publishing partners to, to really sure. implement this? 
Yeah, so so Mozilla is a fascinating place, uh, and and really does stand for for good on the internet. I mean, that it really is its focus with Firefox and everything else. Um, the the way that the project ended up at Mozilla was really because of the Knight Foundation, uh, and the Knight Foundation gave the initial grant to. Um, to create the Coral project. And, and the way that that worked was that um, Aaron Pilhoffer from the New York Times then had been talking to, to the Washington Post and uh, they agreed to come together to try and develop this platform. Now, of course, the Times and the Post coming together is not something that, that happens very often, but they, they agreed to do this. Uh, but the Knight Foundation said to them, listen, if you're making something that is open source, that is designed for everybody to use. This is not an area in which you have a lot of expertise. While you do open source some things, it tends to be what's known in the open source world as throwing things over the wall, which is to say, yeah, the code is here. You can use it if you like, but we've built it just for us. And actually for you to use it is going to be really hard because it's not well documented. It's not built for everybody else's systems. It's just built for ours. Uh, and they wanted to really make sure that anything we built would genuinely be used, but be able to be used by everyone. Uh, and open source software is, is something that Mozilla excels in. So there, there was a group at the time at Mozilla called Open News. Uh, they're no longer at Mozilla, but they, they're still going. They support newsroom developers and, and open source. Uh, and so they were brought into the mix with the initial grant to, to help make the project possible. So, so from the beginning, Mozilla was, was brought in as being that kind of steward uh, to also ensure that it didn't become something which would just be fought over by the Times and the Post because no one knew how they would interact around this uh, and become a difficult a difficult situation where nothing would would result. And some of the coverage when when we were when the project was announced was quite negative. Um, some people said nothing will emerge from this because the Times and the Post will just argue with each other until the money runs out. Uh, and so they really wanted to make sure that that didn't happen as well. And it didn't happen. Working with both was, was a terrific experience. Uh, and that in no small part because Mozilla was in the middle. It was always Mozilla would run the project in collaboration with, with these two. Uh, and so, so what that meant for us was that we were part of a, an organization that had a very clear moral compass that was very clear in its lines about what could and couldn't be done with the data, which was an immediate differentiator for us in the marketplace. Um, a lot of other comment spaces, uh, comment tools that you can get, especially the free ones, that they make their money by scraping the data, by inserting trackers into your website, um, by inserting ad tech into your website. Uh, and, and we wanted to create something that would not do this for the good of the internet and to allow users to be quite and safe on, online. Uh, and so, so having Mozilla at the core of the work from the beginning really helped allow us to, to set that up. Andrew, I think that's a good segue to, uh, to our next point uh, around the, the current state of moderation, I guess. So, you know, there's been, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's Helen Graf, I think, by Washington Post. And there's, um, like you said, there's a, that whole spectrum of the ones which works on, which come from data scraping and everything else. Can you provide a bit of a background around what the current landscape looks like in terms of moderation from a journalistic perspective or the ones that um, media science use currently. Sure. And when you say with moderation, do you mean the different kinds of community tools that are being used? Yes, like similar to, to the Coral Project, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, so I'm not going to throw out names, but um, just because you know that I think that that's helpful. I think that so really what what um, that there's there are two different directions. There's the free direction, and then there's the paid for direction. Um, the free direction. Uh, there's a number of tools that do this. There are new players and old players in this, and they're they're what they are are marketing companies or advertising companies that provide a commenting layer on top in return for being able to place ads and ad trackers onto your website. Um, and that's a trade-off. 
And, you know, I understand there are very limited resources in journalism. So that's a trade-off that, that some sites feel comfortable doing. They tend to work on bulk plays, and, and which means that they want as many people as possible in the space. And they tend to also work in terms of bringing people into your community who would not otherwise be there. Now, on the one hand, that could be a good thing because they bring more people to your site. They might increase your page views. On the other hand, it might not be a good thing because you have people from communities, countries, areas that are nothing to do with the, your, your target audience, will never be in your target audience, and don't care about your site, and are really only here to have an argument or to engage in conversation or to, to sort of yell at each at different people who they disagree with or on this topic, um, regardless of, of what site is on. So if you're trying to build a loyal audience and readership, it doesn't help with that. And, and also, it, it really depends on the metrics. And we're seeing this with Facebook right now, where you know, the question of does Facebook really optimize for engagement and does, is the best kind of engagement rage? Because if people are really upset and angry and screaming, boy, are they engaging. Um, now, now, there are, of course, huge downsides to that, because that means that you have a community that is, that is not very strong and is not, uh, is not a very nice place to hang out. Um, but uh, if engagement is your goal, then, then that's, that's one direction. So, that, so that, that's one part. The free sites, pure bulk, um, trying to get on thousands and thousands of sites. Everything is identical across all those sites in order to, to make everything uh, generic and, uh, and go in that direction. And then there are a handful of paid products, um, and and we're, we're well, I'll, I'll say where we sit in a second, but we're, we we are closer in, in terms of the paid products uh, because what we do is offer a highly flexible solution where the data is yours, and you own the data, uh, and nobody else gets access to it. There are no trackers, there's no surveillance, there's no advertising trying to scrape the data of your users or getting access to your users, uh, and so your audience is yours, and you can then plug that into the other kind of engagement you're trying to so in other words, you're trying to move people through a subscription funnel so they're more likely to subscribe. You're trying to use your existing audience and leverage them to be able to supply more information to improve your reporting or improve your journalism. You're trying to, to grow loyalty by having a powerful and strong community. And that's just a very different strategy. With it. While the tools themselves can feel the same, it's a completely different way of, of thinking about your community and of being able to establish the kinds of conversations you want to have. So, so really, we're seeing a split in those two directions. And what we've seen, um, given that our tool is, is open source, which means you can download the code and you can run it yourself on a server. But I want to be careful in saying that it's not free. In other words, the code is free. You can take it for free. You don't need to get permission. You don't need to tell us. Um, but you still need to run a server. You need to know how to set up, run, support, manage, and upgrade a server. Um, and, it, and also, you need to want to be able to pay to do that because you have to pay developers and pay your server costs. And that's something where instead, people can pay us to do that. And we very happily will, will manage and run it, just give you an embed code. Uh, and and you know, your data will remain only your data, and it won't let you log in. Users, if they log into one website, can't log into another website using the same login because each community is Whereas on the free side, you log in once and you're logged in across the network because they're trying to grow basically a social network built in around everybody else's websites. Um, so, so, so that's sort of the, the, main, the main divide between the two. What we're seeing in the industry right now as a trend is, is a lot of sites moving away from the free model because the trade-off is just not worth it. Um, the tools are buggy. The tools are not great. The, the the way in which the users are being sold, the experience for across communities, this sort of faux social network is encouraging worse behavior. Um, and it really doesn't help people build the loyalty that they're trying to do. 
so any site that cares about its community, uh, they, they tend to either move away from the free tools or they'll run the free tools behind a button where they'll never read it uh, again. And the, the way that, the way that, that we, we try to encourage new sites to, to think about it is this. This is an, an, an analogy I use a lot. Um, imagine that you're trying to collect food for a food bank. Okay, so, so you could uh, take 100 cardboard boxes and just randomly throw them around street corners in your city. Just, you know, put, just throw them out. You could just drive down in a taxi and start throwing cardboard boxes out. Uh, and just leave them all over the city and then come back the next day and see if you happen to have collected any food. You know, what's, what's going to happen? It's just a whole bunch of empty boxes all over the city. People are just going to throw trash in it or they're just going to kick it around, ignore it. Or you could say, look, what are we trying to do? Okay, we're trying to collect food. All right, well, what's the best way to do that? Probably go where, where we're more likely to get food. So, so how about the, the 10 biggest supermarkets in the city? Let's go to them. Um, and we'll just put 10 boxes out there instead of 100. Uh, and we'll write on the box what we want, because otherwise it's just a box outside a supermarket. So you to write, you know, collecting food, name the food bank. And because there were 10 boxes, you could go a couple of times a day around the 10 boxes, and if there's any trash, you could take it out. Um, and, and also you're more likely to be there when people give you food. You can say thank you. People will feel appreciated. Uh, and you can also, if you see there's any tins of food in the box, if tins of food's what you're after, you could take those tins out of the box and put them next to the box and put a little sign up that says, um, I don't know, uh, um, here's the best you've given us today. So every time someone walks by, they see, oh, a box. I understand what it's for. I see that it's being monitored and I can see other people are giving you what you want. And here's what you want is tins of food. So when they're inside the store, they, uh, they might see the tins of food and say, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a tin of soup out there. Um, I'm going to get you a tin of peat. Um, now, where we are with comments and community on news sites right now is that most places, they're just putting an empty box at the bottom of every single article, 100 a day, walking away coming back the next day because it's too big a scale for them to manage and going, oh, it's full of garbage. Well, at least at least there's like 100 pieces of garbage in every box. So look at the numbers. You know, there's, there's some garbage, but it's numbers. Uh, and it's garbage because the internet is to blame. You know, we, we shouldn't be that surprised in what we're getting. And, uh, and if you care only about a number of pieces of garbage in there, then, then that's what you're getting. It's still garbage. Or you could be, look at it as we want to be strategic. We want to do it on a scale we can manage. We want to guide people to the kind of conversation we want and reward them for doing it and really come to it from a strategic way first. And so, so that's the direction that we come at it in. And that's, that's sort of in, in contrast to those who are saying, doesn't matter what's in it. Look at it. It's 100 pieces of garbage in there, but it's 100. So, so that's sort of a, a big summary of, of the way we think about it and the way that we see uh, all of this happen. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I guess I think the, the common thing to me that, that doesn't, with uh, commenting platforms, and, you know, all the, just with, uh, how they look like, like how do you show the public, other publishers how they can assess the, the size and the value of the community that's coming onto the web that, that, that's using the platform, I guess. How yes. that's what they can see that? Yeah, it's a great question about you know what is the value and how do you measure it? And I think I think as an industry we're we're, we're at a really interesting point of what we can measure and and what's really hard to measure. I mean it's it's really hard to measure how much how much does any given reader really value your journalism? How do you put a number on that? Um, we can put a number on how many people visited the page, but did they like what they read? Were they angry at what they read? Did they come there because they were sent from uh, a rival publication that said, look how terrible this is, or from Twitter where everyone was yelling at you? 
or did they come because they've always been your loyal readers? Uh, and so, so we're starting to get a little bit more sophisticated, but there's still a big gap um, between understanding how you can you can deepen someone someone's uh, appreciation of what you do and their loyalty. Uh, and, and we have these sort of proxy measures like shares and, and conversation and quality of conversation and so on. But we're still a little bit away of being able to know this for sure. I mean, what, what, I, what I say to newsrooms is, is really that uh, community and, and commenting is part of this, although it does not need to be the only part and it shouldn't be the only part, um, it, it is really about uh, understanding how you connect your audience to your mission and how you measure whether your mission is succeeding, and then how you measure whether your audience is helping you with your mission. Um, and so, so it requires a lot of bigger thinking. It's not, it's not an add-on that you just put on there and you can ignore. Um, it's not, uh, I don't know, a seat warmer in the car, but it doesn't matter how the car runs. Uh, it's, it's really much more fundamental than that. Uh, it's it's more like the gas you put in the tank, I suppose, uh, in terms of uh, of being able to to really power what you're doing. So so it's it, there's no single answer to that. I wish there was. I wish there was. You know the uh, comments community metric, and your answer is three point two. Uh, congratulations. Um, but uh, but I think that it's not that because uh, every newsroom is different, and and really understanding what your mission and goals are and how you connect your community to that is the first first stage to then coming up with the, the variety of metrics that will give you a sense of of how your community is is being able to shape and improve your journalism and that will include um how many times journalists find tips and ideas in the community that will include how many times uh, any given community member has interacted directly with a journalist and does that what's the how much more likely does it make them to donate or subscribe uh, or bring another person or family member into the subscriptions and, and so on. Um, it's it's really about connecting community to the metrics rather than having a single community metric on its own. Can um, Coral integrate with other analytics platforms and show sort of that secondary metric or that journey in, in like, for example, Google Analytics or Adobe? Is there ability to integrate with those? That way they can actually see sort of that journey that users take? Or is it just reporting suite? No, no, you can you can connect it to, to anything. We have a fully formed API. We use a piece of technology called GraphQL, um, which was actually uh, created by Facebook and is open sourced. Facebook does not get any of the data. It's just the technology they built, uh, which uh, also powers Facebook's uh, analytics and, and sort of hooks for people to be able to interact with, with their platform. Uh, and so we've taken that piece of technology and built it into our platform. So that means that you have uh, a fully formed API that you can connect to Google Analytics or, or anywhere else. Nice. And how's the UA system moderation currently working out with the Coral project? Because I know that, that that's been a bit of a hot topic um, with um, you know with the reduction of editor the, the role of the editor and more using AI powered com comment moderation. How's that currently with the Coral project? Yeah, so so we looked early on at developing our own AI, and uh, and we looked at machine learning, and we we paid a couple of researchers to just do a few small pieces uh, to to understand what was happening. Um, and what we felt was that there was a number of very interesting and sophisticated companies doing great work in this space. And instead of trying to replicate what they do, actually, we'd be better served by making a system that could plug into what. Uh, and so we we created in this flexible way from the beginning. And so what we see is that some proprietary AI systems, so the Washington Post has its own. Um, there's a news organization 
uh, in Canada that's building their own. Um, there is a news, there's a, a moderation group in Germany that has its own AI system as well in different languages. Uh, and so they they're able to connect to um, to to what uh, to what the moderation system does. Uh, and also we provide as well uh, connections to Google Jigsaw's AI called Perspective API. Uh, and this is something that Google Jigsaw, which is the sort of nonprofit uh, social good arm of Google, has built out for specifically for news organizations and publishers and for for positive communities. Uh, and so what this does is that uh, we can, we provide the ability to connect that very easily if you want to to to, to our platform uh, also the default is to not share any data with Google though you can you can change that as well and Google has a number of reasons they'd like newsrooms to do this but we make that up to up to each newsroom to do um, and and the way that we use it is is very specific because we, we've studied a lot what AI can and can't do and and we believe that there is not yet any AI moderation tool good enough to take over the moderation entirely um, we just do not see it as good enough, and we're not the only ones, because Facebook doesn't see it as good enough. This is why they hire tens of thousands of moderators, let alone the fact that this is not a computer question entirely. This is also a society and cultural question as well. Um, and so we use AI in a very specific way, which is to say that um, when a user writes a comment that exceeds the threshold that is like, that the AI thinks is likely to be toxic or it's likely to be deleted by the newsroom. Um, the first thing we do is send a, a message back to the commenter. Uh, and, and we were one of the very first to do this. And what we do is we send it back to the commenter saying, um, the language in this comment, we think the language in this comment is going to violate our guidelines. You can edit it or you can submit it anyway. And we're very careful about the way we say this. So first of all, we're, we're not saying you are violating the guidelines because people can get very defensive if they feel that they are being attacked. We use the passive voice, the language in this comment. Uh, and, and also we want to make clear that the AI might be wrong. So we say we think and you can submit it anyway, uh, making very clear we're not accusing people of anything because maybe it's wrong. Uh, and then they get one chance. And in that one chance, they might decide, oh, you know, okay, you're right. I can see I can't get away with this kind of thing. I'm going to modulate it a bit. Um, or they might try and game it. They might try and insert asterisks or, or kind of trick characters to try and get their message through. Um, the system is very sophisticated. So, so if, they, if they try to do that, it's very likely to get caught, uh, at which point it then just says, okay, we still think a moderator needs to look at this, so we're going to hold on to it uh, before it gets published. So in other words, you have one opportunity, and then it gets held back for moderator approval. So what we call it is, we call it as AI-assisted human moderation. The AI is not doing the moderating, but the AI is deciding what may or may not be uh, held back for then a human to make the final call. Uh, because we're, we're very, we want to be very careful and very intentional about the way this is used. Uh, and one big newsroom that uses our platform, they were using the platform without this AI activated, and then they activated it, and uh, we were winning some tests to see how that would work. Uh, and for them, they found a 40% drop in moderation just by them telling their own commenters, hey, listen, we think this might be a problem. Uh, and we saw very little backlash as well from their community. I was expecting a lot more, quite frankly, um, from, from their community as a result of this being the case. So, uh, so, so far, we've, we've seen very positive responses in that. Now, other tools use AI in other ways. Some promise uh, uh, things that we don't think are technically possible in terms of their promises that ne a human never needs to read this or anything like that. Um, and also, we think that humans should be involved in the community. You should want to be engaged in the conversation. Our goal is to make it so that the moderators can spend more time celebrating the good and less time just having to, to deal with the bad, which is overwhelmingly uh, the work that they do right now.
It totally makes sense. Yeah, I think it was like like you said, it was a big controversy when there was news around having a purely AI an AI person just trying to monitor everything, but at the moment it should just be sort of assisting. So that totally makes sense. And um is there any other particular tech or specific areas in moderation that you know in currently those who are actually paying for for a solution? That are the, the playing, you know, or trying to expand on any other features that they're trying to use to help improve the process. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways in which which newsrooms and others are trying to improve communities. I think that one of the key ways is just to to get to know your community better, um, to understand who is engaging and and what is your relationship with them. Have they been a subscriber for 25 years or did they just arrive and create a new account today? Um, and, and so by being able to deepen that relationship, you're then able to, to add more context and more understanding of who people are because, because really that, that's going to be the key piece that, that really helps you understand the context of, of someone's behavior and what's happening. Um, I, I, we, we talked for a while with um, uh, one of the, the, the lead moderators on a site called Metafilter uh, Jessamine West, and she she said that the best moderation tool she ever had was the ability to reach out to a commenter and say, "Hey, are you okay?" Um, because like, that would nine times out of ten, that would just cause people to apologize, step back, and say, "Yeah, okay, I'm just having a bad day," and, and so on. Um, now, now what we are seeing at the same time, of course, is a growth in targeted attacks. Um, by bots or by coordinated individuals uh, yeah. to try to shape the conversation. And this is something relatively new. I say relatively new because um, this is something that we've seen for several years now, in particular attacks on women of color. Um, in particular, with the, there was recently a piece actually looking over the history, I think it was on Slate, looking over the history of uh, something called Your Slippers Showing, uh, which was attacks specifically on women of color using bots and uh, coordinated fake names and uh, spoofing attacks, which we're now seeing happening elsewhere on social networks and we saw very much in, in 2016. Um, and so, so we're seeing a growth in that. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're also seeing a growth of, of really interesting counter tactics. And I think that some of the, the best that I've seen come from moderators on Reddit. Um, Reddit being a, a platform that uh, certainly until fairly recently provided extremely rudimentary moderation tools, uh, but at the same time, a platform in which people could build their own pieces on top. Uh, similar to, to ours, where you can build your own plugins, you can build your own connections to, to other services. Uh, this is something that, uh, that the Reddit moderators have been doing for a while. Uh, and there's some very sophisticated Reddit bots on, on various subreddits that are doing interesting ways of identifying potential issues, identifying patterns of behavior, clusters of conversation, and so on, uh, to, to then uh, create what, uh, and flag things for human moderators to go and review. So, so I think that Reddit's a really fascinating place to, to run experiments and to, to understand better some of the, some of the ways in which you can, you can engage and interact uh, on, on a system level. And, and how about, the, I've seen other polling solutions, particularly for publishers, and we did have one of our guests was um, actually a company that actually helps publishers with making their content more engageful, engageful by actually embedding polling solutions and other related solutions around that. Uh, is that something that you guys have been looking into more as well, just to get better engagement from users or feedback from users as well? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think that engagement is a really interesting area where there's enough space for a lot of different tools. Uh, and we see this with, with tools like Harken, uh, tools like GroundSource. Uh, I think you, you, you were talking to Pierre from Epinary uh, and, uh, and many others as well. And I, and I think that's great. This is something we are very clear to people as well, uh, that um, to paraphrase Cookie Monster, comments are sometimes food. And, and they're extremely good at certain kinds of interaction. And other times we suggest you close your comments and use a form or use letters to the editor email, or use a Facebook group, or use Harkon, or use uh, Opinary, or use something else. I mean, it really comes down to thinking as flexibly as you would about how we're going to illustrate this article. Are we going to do a video? Are we going to have an illustration? Are we going to commission a photographer? Are we going to use stock photography? Thinking about engagement in the same terms, about what is the right thing for this space? What are we looking for? What dangers do we expect? What, what kind of abuse do we expect around this topic? What kinds of conversations do we want to have? Uh, and, and how do we make it as productive as possible for everybody? Uh, and, and I think that that's the thinking that needs to happen with engagement as well. So, so for us, we're, we're really happy to focus on our area of expertise, which is community engagement with each other and with the journalists. Uh, but there are, there are many other ways of, of being able to engage many to many, many to one, and, and so on, uh, using a whole variety of different tools. That's interesting to hear, like you're saying that there's a, it's big enough for many people to play in the space because, yeah, I guess that publisher that are done, I mean, it doesn't, but it's interesting that you say that. With just, just like, a, like you're saying, it, it, every, every, I guess, publisher is different and they have their different needs. So, um, just with what, as you mentioned, there's 60 current newsrooms that are engaging with you guys. So, can you go through some different case studies or some different examples of how they've come on and, and sort of goals, outcomes, and how you've helped them? Sure. So, so I can talk in, in generic terms about things that haven't been written about, but some things have been written about, and I can, I can talk about those. So, so I can, for example, talk a little bit about the Wall Street Journal. Um, now, they very recently... Uh, announced uh, a big strategic shift around their their commenting, and this was this was in conversation with us and is using our platform. So so one of the things that they're doing is that they they decided they wanted to move commenting to be subscriber only first of all. So so they have more information about the people in the conversation. There are pros and cons about that, of course, because that means the conversation becomes more exclusive. But it does mean they have more more control over users. If you ban a subscriber, they have to subscribe again to to comment. So that can also you know if if trolls want to uh, buy multiple subscriptions to newspapers then maybe we save journalism um, but they they also uh, they they are focusing on conversations in targeted places similar to the sort of the 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 box collecting for the food bank, that they are targeting conversations only on certain kinds of articles, and they're having journalists engage much more um, and being seeing it much more as a value add rather than just something that is by default everywhere. Uh, and so they're doing some really interesting work there. Uh, the Washington Post, they've been with us from the beginning, and they, of course, use our platform as well uh, at extreme scale. And we see there's, there's some really exciting communities and individual spaces on the Washington Post. Um, for example, the Capital Weather Gang, where they talk about weather which you would think is not very engaging and would not get much of a community. But if you look at any particular post of theirs, there are hundreds of comments of people sharing information, uh, talking to each other, talking to the to the journalists as well, many of whom have been hired from the comments themselves uh, and, and really engaging in a meaningful way and, and in a way that they really connect in, in this space. Um, we see as well in, in smaller sites, uh, so the Texas Tribune recently moved over to us, and the Texas Tribune, of course, is, is extremely dedicated to community-led journalism, 
uh, and the ways in which they're using our platform to augment their live events uh, and their reporting, and they're doing it in a very targeted and and smart way. And so we we see for for them it's it's another particular kind of uh, kind of engagement. Um, and then there's uh, Civil Beat in Honolulu, for example. They um, they've been running a, a handful of experiments that we really like, and and one of them was um, that they they uh, started doing Q and A's in the comments with some of their journalists. And so what they would do is say, okay, the comments are only going to be open on this article for two hours. It's going to be these two hours. Uh, and the comments are going to be pre-moderated first. So if someone comes in and yells at a journalist, the journalist doesn't see it, just the moderator sees it. The moderator will be approving things through for the journalist to see. Uh, they'll appear live in the comments, and then the journalist can reply like a live chat uh, using the comments really as a live Q&A platform, uh, which we think is really exciting and really interesting. So we're, we're doing some other experiments in that direction as well. Uh, and, and we think that there's, uh, it really shows that this is not just a one, this is not a platform for only one kind of engagement, but that you can use it in, in lots of different ways. How do those, journalists, how do those moderators ensure there's objectivity though, in terms of choosing what to approve, what not to approve, or how to approach the engagement. Like, like you said, because the Washington Post, they only have it for the paid subscribers, and then you've got Texas Tribune who does this for live events. So how, how is that decided, and, and how the objectivity and journalist integrity ensure that it's balanced and, and remain, remains there? Yeah, just uh, sure. Just just to clarify as well, it's um, the Wall Street Journal subscribers only. The Washington Post is not, um, and the Texas Tribune uses it for lots of different things. It's just they have a very very large um, uh, live event strategy. But uh, but the bigger the bigger question stands of you know how how do you ensure objectivity or should you ensure objectivity? And and it, I think the bigger question is what are you looking for from this space? Are you looking for people to be objective? Are you looking for people to be reactive and to respond? Uh, I mean, one of the things that we've been looking at is, is the different kinds of comments that people can leave and the different motivations for doing so. And, and we believe that there are, there are three different kinds of comment, um, but a comment can be more than one of these kinds. And th those three are very simply um, someone saying what they feel, someone saying what they know, and someone saying what they don't know. Uh, and that's, it could be a combination. It could be someone saying what they feel and, some, and what they know or, or what they know and what they don't know. And, so on. But those are the three main uh, types, and, and they overlap. Right? Um, and they are responding either to the content of the article, you know, the facts of what happened. They might be responding to the way the article is written. Uh, that could be saying there were typos or disliking that person or saying that opinion is wrong. Uh, or they could be responding to other members of the community, other comments in, in different ways. Um, and so, so by thinking about that and saying, well, well, the question then comes for each newsroom to decide what kind of comments do they want to approve? What is the point that they are looking to, to bring across by, by having community conversations? Is it solely what do you know? Is it solely how do you feel about this? Um, how do you want to shape that conversation? And what is the value to other people reading it? And what we found through our research, and we do a lot of research with, with academic groups and others to really understand the space better, is, is that um, most people, when they're reading the comments, they're reading the comments to understand, okay, what do other people think about this? Where do I sit uh, in relation to the community that I'm part of? What, what, what is it? How should I feel about this? I, I think I feel this way. Is that in line with what other people feel? Uh, and can I see more information to help my own knowledge? Uh, about this increase. And then, and then also related to that, people also like to be entertained. Sometimes people say funny things in the comments. Um, so, so there's also entertainment as 
well. Um, and so, so when it comes to the sort of bigger newsroom question of how do you ensure the conversation is objective, maybe that isn't your goal. Maybe your goal is to ensure the conversation is civil, or maybe your goal is to ensure the conversation raises different voices, or maybe your goal is to ensure the conversation is useful for the journalist. So I think that, that really it needs to come from, and we, we work a lot with newsrooms to think about this, uh, what the strategy is first, uh, and then from there being able to decide where your boundaries are, and then it's really important to clearly state them to the community so everyone understands where those boundaries are, and then to visibly enforce those boundaries from there. And that doesn't just mean removing things, it also means participating and saying to people, listen, this is, you know, these kinds of comments we're going to start removing, so everyone else can see that you're visibly present in that space. Understood. So Carl also he said, uh, as you alluded to, you guys offer a service as well, strategy, strategic, I guess, advisory. So how, how much of that plays a role in, in terms of the direction, the newsrooms that you've brought on, how, how much of you, you, that advice, does that help them with that strategic direction that they take? Uh, well, you'd, you'd have to ask the newsrooms to, to be sure, but what we've heard anecdotally is that it's extremely useful. Uh, and, and we make very clear as well to, to newsrooms who come to us that um, people come to us with what they think is, is one kind of problem, and we, we try and help them understand that it's another. They come to us usually saying, the comments are bad, and people are being horrible to each other. Can you stop this from happening? Um, and what I usually say is, look, this is a problem, but this problem is the symptom it's not the disease. If the symptom is that you've got spots all over your hands, we could cure that by putting on gloves. But that's not curing the, the real problem. That's yeah. just covering it up. Um, and the real problem of what they have is that they usually do not have an integrated community strategy in understanding even why they have comments in the first place. Uh, and what the value of comments could be on the site. And I've had conversations with some museums where they come to us saying, we want to use your stuff. And we, I've talked to them about what their strategy is, and they've explained it to me. And I've said to them, okay, here's what I think you should do. I think you shouldn't pay us. I think you'd shut down your comments. And please don't allow people to talk on your website because you don't want to put any resources into it. You have no goal in ever reading the comments. You think they're a waste of time. So why have them? Like, Why put your moderators through this pain? Um, and so, so if, if there is no strategy at all, um, that's the biggest problem. The problem isn't uh, that they ha don't happen to be using the right technology. It's almost never a technology problem. It's always a strategy problem. The technology makes things worse, but, uh, but, but it doesn't start there. Um, so, so what we've seen is, is real improvements in those newsrooms who are, who are coming over to use our stuff. Um, but we believe as well that, that some of that comes from the technology, but a lot more of it comes from, from shifting their thinking and really applying a new kind of community strategy to, to what they're doing. And just, um, I forgot to ask you this, what's your testing methodology? I know you, you spoke about potentially using Reddit as a platform, but how do you guys usually do testing? Yeah, we do a lot of different kinds of testing. Um, we do a lot of user interviews and user testing. We have, uh, before we launch features, we have a, a small group of people who work in, in moderation and uh, on the newsroom sites who, who are in a sort of informal, what we call our design club, where we send out prototypes of features for testing. Uh, with people who work, some of whom work in our platform, some of whom don't, but really like the work that we do and want to, to, to learn and, and understand how, what, what we're working on. Uh, and so we, we work with that group. 
we do, uh, sometimes we've done more formal studies. We've done academic studies, uh, testing out different pieces and different ideas. We've got one coming up quite soon that we're doing with a large news chain uh, where we're going to be studying uh, the impacts of different kinds of commenting and uh, different kinds of uh, features that, that are going to be available. Um, so, so for us, it's, it's a lot of looking at user research, looking at anonymized data from those that we host, uh, and also uh, a lot of uh, qualitative and quantitative studies uh, across different versions of, of communities using our tools and, uh, or, or testing out uh, prototypes of our tools. So, so we have a, a very varied selection of ways, um, but we always try to, to focus everything we build is, is based on some research uh, and based on an understanding of, of the change that we want to see. So all of this research and um, the, the strategic advisory you offer, how do you think all this plays a role in soft, providing software as a service in journalism? Yeah, so, so for us, what, what we mean by software as a service is really just that um, you can pay us to host, manage, support, upgrade, and, and also train you and, and help make sure that, that everything is working well for you. Um, for us, the research is, is fundamental. And, and it's one of the big points of difference uh, from us, from, from everyone else as well, that we've, we've from the very beginning, have, have looked at uh, trying to understand the history of online communities, because we've got 30 years of online communities now. Um, and so really just the idea of, you know, a lot of other platforms, we just see them introducing a feature because Facebook did it six months ago. Um, for us, we're just saying, well, what can we learn from all the things that have happened in online? Um, what are the kinds of changes we're looking for? We want to make healthier spaces, not necessarily the highest traffic spaces, if they're unhealthy communities or, or toxic communities. So, so for us, by doing this research and adding to the research in, in terms of what's missing right now in, in online community research, uh, we try to add to it. Um, for us, it, it really becomes a fundamental part of understanding what we want to do next, whether what we're doing is working, and, and what the direction needs to be. For, for how to approach online community in general. Uh, and so whenever we do a study, we, we publish the results publicly if it doesn't include any, any data that we can't uh, publish. So we put it on our website at coalproject.net slash research. Uh, and, and we want to continue making that a core part of what we do. Um, because our biggest goal is to make online communities better for everybody, uh, whether they're using our tools or not. Uh, and so for us, it's, it's really fundamental to our mission and, and how we carry it out. Do you think it's a path to making sustainable journalism? Because, you know, particularly with Vox, they've gone down the path of creating products to, to help sustain sustain their efforts. And um, so if there's other uh, publishers that go down different routes in, in trying to develop a monetization, we've seen the case with BuzzFeed, although they're struggling a bit in terms of delving into e-commerce or delving into different other business models. Do you think this is a, a, a business sustainable business model that should be considered when starting up a digital media organization? I think the idea of becoming a technology company that sells technology as, as well as doing journalism is a very expensive and risky path to go down. Um, I think that Vox is able to do it because from the beginning, they, they've built their own technology and they've made it, got it to a, a stage of maturity where other people are really desperate to use it and, uh, and it does its jo uh, job really, really well. Uh, and so us now coming in as part of that because uh, the Chorus platform uh, didn't really have community tools like ours, so, so we, we're very complementary to everything that's happening. But uh, I, would, I would be very careful as any kind of new startup and thinking of yourself as a technology and a media company. Um, I think that we're seeing a move now much more towards memberships, much more towards um, uh, sort of mission-driven subscriptions. 
uh, as being more sustainable because the overheads are lower and the risks are lower. Uh, it's obviously there are some players who are able to make technology and software as a service a go of it uh, as a as a professional part of of what they do, sustaining some of the journalism. And Vox is one of those. But but I think there's only space for a handful in that in that space, just because. Uh, it's very expensive and very risky to go down that path. So, so while I'm not saying nobody can do it, I I do think that there's only a limited number who will be able to do this successfully. Fair enough. So let's look ahead. So, Andrew, what's what's some of the things you're excited about with the Corals project, and what are some of the future plans, if if you can uh, disclose any? Sure. Uh, so, so what we're excited about is is different kinds of engagement and conversation. We're excited about bringing that to more kinds of communities. Uh, we're excited about going to different kinds of newsrooms around the world. As I say, we're in thirteen countries. We we want to be in fifty. Uh, we're excited about uh, understanding what we can get from different cultural contexts of our talks. Um, that as we go into different languages, and right now there are 14 different languages the talk is in, uh, the cultural context of the tools and how they're used is, is very different in different spaces. So we want to be able to learn more about that. And, uh, and, and we're going to be relaunching our, our, our products later on this year. Uh, we've got a new version which we're right now in testing and it's looking amazing. It's incredibly fast, incredibly small, uh, and and it has hundreds of feature improvements on, on what we have right now. And so we are really excited to, to put that out there uh, by the fall for, for everybody to use and, and be able to, to, to really uh, make it more available for more kinds of newsrooms and, and even smaller newsrooms to be able to hit price points that they can they can afford. So so for us, it's it's really about building on what we have, consolidating and growing, and also innovating in the space and bringing new kinds of interactions uh, that we believe are going to make a big difference in how the conversations uh, go. Uh, and we're really excited to start testing those. And where does Corals strategically sit with Corus and overalls, the overall direction with Vox Media? Yeah, so, so Vox Media has three main uh, technology products now. Chorus, which is the, the CMS. Uh, Concert, which is the ad platform. Uh, and now Coral, it seems like the letter C is very lucky for them. Uh, and so so for what, what that means is, yeah, exactly. Uh, so what that means is that uh, each one of these can stand alone. There are newsrooms who use Concert only. For example, it's the ad platform for BuzzFeed. Uh, there are newsrooms that just use Chorus. So uh, the Deseret News, for example, is about to start using Chorus. Uh, and there are newsrooms that uh, only use Coral, like all of the, the 60 plus newsrooms right now. Uh, and so what we're what we're seeing is, is that some newsrooms will want the package of all three. Uh, and so so we're integrating with a number of newsrooms uh, to be able to supply all three to them. And we're going to become much more a fundamental part of Chorus for those who want that. So it will be uh, really into, closely integrated by the end of the year into the Chorus platform. But that's uh, that's an option and it will we're going to remain standalone like the other products as well. Nice. Uh, just, to, just to wrap up that conversation, Andrew, do you have any career advice that you can provide people who would like to go into, into tech and they started in journalism or, who, or maybe people who want to go straight into what you're doing now? Can you provide any advice for them on how they can get there sooner or, or overcome some of the challenges that you experienced? And, and do you have any additional comment? Uh, yeah. I would say stay flexible. Uh, go to events, network, meet people, uh, meet people for coffee as often as you can. 
because you never know when they're going to end up either as colleagues or potential colleagues or people you want to know. And just keep your eyes open to, to everything that's happening next on podcasts like these. Uh, you know, there's, there's, this is an industry that is constantly changing. It's constantly under threat in lots of ways, and it's constantly providing new opportunities in lots of ways as well. So, so I think that just by staying on top of what's going on, uh, you're going to set yourself up in, the, in a really good way to be ready for whatever's next. Nice. Any, any final words or comments, Andrew? Uh, only that it's great to speak to you and that if anyone's interested in learning more about how we can help uh, either individual journalists or newsrooms be able to engage better with, with your communities, then, then just reach out. You can find us at coal.voxmedia.com or, or coalproject.net, uh, or you can also see, I'm sure, in the show notes of the podcast as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.